0: Take your Bibles and uh, turn to Psalms, the 23rd Psalm. Hold it there. If you want to, you can also go to Luke chapter 10 and grab your Bibles in both those places. You know, it amazes me sometimes what people will say, what they think about God, who He is and how God thinks and their opinions and thoughts. There's just a lot of commentary on out there about God and who He is and what He does and all that, and... Case in point, I, I listen to satellite radio in my truck quite a bit, and often if you have that, you, you know they're advertising another satellite radio station for you to listen to, uh, getting you to know what's all on different station stuff. And the other day, an advertisement came up for a satellite radio station that Joel Olstein, the, the preacher, it's, it's his, and apparently on that station, he has a show where he interviews famous people. And so it was excerpts, it was advertising that show, and it was and it was Oprah Winfrey. And there's, uh, she makes a statement there where she says, you know, I don't really believe that God wants you to be poor and unhappy. And immediately, Joel Osteen jumps in and says, I believe that too. And in that statement, I, I was, you know, the assumption, the assertion is, God doesn't want you to be poor and unhappy, then the assertion is what God does want is you to be wealthy and happy. And there's an assumption in that that wealth and happiness go together. Well, if that's true, then why is it that day after day you can open up just about any web page that has news on it, you can go to any Google search about celebrity news and day after day you see stories of those who are wealthy, those who are famous and yet they're incredibly unhappy. You see they're making choices in life that are self-destructive. You see at the same time that they're doing things that, 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 that just are, are, are outward expressions of a heart that is lost and unhappy. I mean, Hollywood and rehab just simply seem to go together, right? I don't know about that assumption. And even on that, what does it mean to be wealthy? I mean, where's the line? Where's that threshold that when you hit it, you entered into the area of being wealthy? What number is that? Because Most of us in here probably don't think we're wealthy, but what number makes you wealthy? I spent this week, and I went to a website called the Global Rich List. You ought to go there. It's a fascinating little site because what they do on the front, it's very simple. They just have a, a search engine, and you pick your currency, and you put in there, uh, so they'll match the number, how much money you make annually. And then it will give you where you are in the list of world's richest people. And so I was playing with the numbers, and I found out that right at about $15,000 a year, not 50, but $15,000 a year, and the list changes all the time. But when I looked at it, it's about right there at that number. At that point is the threshold that you move into the top 10% wealthiest people in the world. At $15,000. Most of us think that's poverty. How can we live on that? But when you hit that threshold or above, you're in the top 10% of wealthiest people in the world. You're actually taking more income in than 90% of the people of this world. 90% of the world would say that when you hit $15,000, you are, in fact, wealthy. We would not, because what? We live in the 10%. Most of us live in the 5%. Most of us, 95% of the world makes less than we do. So where's the threshold of wealth anyway? And I don't know, and I don't want to belittle or bemoan anyone's financial stress and struggles, because I know that. But I don't know If when we're down here living in at very least the top 10%, if not the top 5% of wealthiest people in the world, I don't know is when we're crying out to God, I don't know if God would say, yeah, your greatest need right now (laughs) of all the needs you have, of all the issues, your greatest need is you need more of what you have. You need more of something that you have, that you have have more than 95% of the world around you have. That's what Oprah and Joel Osteen would kind of leave you to believe. And my whole point is this. There are so many thoughts and opinions out there put out about who God is, even from people who claim to know and love him. And so in this series, what we're trying to do is just strip all that back. Just strip away the opinions, just strip away uh, people's little pontifications on what they think God thinks. And let's just go back to some, and just refresh ourselves, with some of the core characters of God, some of the core attributes of God. We started out talking about how God is holy, that above everything that God is, he is holy, which means he's not like you. It means he doesn't think like you think. He doesn't perceive things the way you perceive them. And so that means sometimes what you value is not going to be the same thing that God values. And what you think God should do will not necessarily be the thing that God knows what to do because his perspective comes from a holy perspective and our perspective comes from a sinful, self-centered perspective. And it means God is different, and that's not a bad thing. We want him to be holy in all that he does because that means everything he does is perfect and right, even what he does in our life, even if we don't quite understand it. So we talked about God being holy. Last week we talked about that God is love. At the core of his character, he doesn't love, he is love. That means that God has <clears throat> an irrational obsession with you. It's irrational, it's illogical, but it is. So we talked about it. Today we're going to just spend a few moments with a very comforting aspect of God's core character, and that is God is present. That means God is checked in. God has showed up. God is dialed in. God is present. And and let me show you how important that is. Think for a moment to your past about someone in your past that really, really helped you. They helped you keep going. They helped you keep believing. They helped you from, from giving up. They helped you to feel secure and loved. Think about that person. Now, what did they do, what did they say, what did they give you that created that? The answers would vary. Some of you would say, well, it was my dad, you know, or my mom. They just always had the right answer. You'd say, it was a friend who really gave me some good advice. Or you would tell about someone who gave you something when you needed that something. And And the list goes on. And all that may be true. But if you stripped away what they taught you, what they did, what they gave you, you would find that there was something far more important than what they may have said or did or gave you. And that is the truly the most important thing that person that you're thinking about did, that helped you, that kept you going, that kept you from giving up, that moved you forward, maybe even saved your life, was not so much something they gave you, not even so much something they taught you, but what they did more than anything else, whether you realize it or not, that helped you, is they showed up when other people didn't show up. They didn't back away when other people backed away. They were checked in when other people were checking out. Well, the most powerful thing they did was that they were present in your life, consistently present in your life. The most powerful thing you can do for anybody, far beyond some great wisdom you can give them, far beyond something tangible you can give them, the greatest thing you can give someone Is to constantly be present. Is to constantly show up. Is to be checked in emotionally with them. To be checked in physically with them. To be present in their life. That is the most powerful thing you can do for anybody. And when you strip it all away. When you strip all the things that people say. And all the things thoughts on who God is. What you'll find one of, if not the most important thing that God is for you every day is that he is present. He's shown up. We may not get this, but the enemy of God gets this. This is why, you notice, you don't really struggle. We don't really struggle because the enemy of God, the, the demonic, doesn't really attack our belief that God is capable. Most of us don't have a struggle with that. You don't sit here and, and, and most times struggle with the fact that I wonder if God can. That's not your struggle. Most of us, that's not our struggle. We we ask, most of us truly believe that God can do whatever he wants. That God is is powerful enough. He can do whatever he stinking wants. The struggle we have is not that. The struggle we have is, is God aware? There's where the battle is. Why? Because there's where the enemy attacks. We struggle with, is God aware of me? Is God aware of my situation? Is God present? Is God dialed in? Is God checked in to what is happening in my life? There's where our struggle is. Why? Because that's where the attack is. Because even if we don't realize it, the enemy realizes that the most powerful thing that God can do in our life on a uh, day-to-day basis is just to show up, is to be present. And here's why. I will tell you, you can make it through anything. You can make it through so, so much when you know you're not alone. When you sense that God is with you. Being present. Showing up. Is so powerful. And it is at the core of who God is. We're going to look at some set of verses that, that that tell us that. And there's a bunch of them we can look at. But we're going to look at a set. But before we get to those verses. I want. Because to fully grasp what he's saying in those verses, I want to go to another story that can kind of help us to grasp what he's going to say with what our focus will be in a minute. And it's a story that's well known, but it's a story that seems absolutely unrelated to God being present, but it's not. So you're going to have to check, keep with me here, all right? It's a very popular story that Jesus tells. And it's one that you've probably heard over and over. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. One of the things that Jesus did so well is he was a great storyteller. He, was, he had a great ability to take some type of truth and not just you know factually teach it, but to communicate it in a storytelling way that it goes beyond the intellect, but goes into the intellect, but it also travels down into the heart of the person. He's he a, a master at that. And what he would do to kind of connect with people is he would tell these stories that were made-up stories. They had a you know, story with a point kind of thing. But he would often, the, back, uh, the backdrop of the story would be some type of true thing, a true event or a true location, something that people could immediately kind of identify with. And, and there was a time in which Jesus did that. He, was, he he'd, he'd made a statement to love your neighbor as yourself. And someone said, well, who's my neighbor? You know who is that? This was a, a time in history where people were very tribal. You're either one of us or you're not one of us. And The Jews were very tribal. It's us and everybody else. And, and so everybody was very tribal. And, and Jesus says, love your neighbor. He said, okay, well, that's fine. But who's my neighbor? Is it my fellow Jew? Is it my physical neighbor? Who's my neighbor in this world? And so to answer that question, Jesus tells this story. Luke chapter 10, picking up at verse 30, it says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw, uh, passed by, saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan. As he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. When he went to him and and bandaged his wounds and and poured on oil and wine, then he put the the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think? Was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Great story. I mean, you can kind of, I bet as the story was being read, you kind of picture the whole setting in your mind. You kind of can picture it taking place because it was. And it's kind of a vivid story that does that. As vivid as it may be for you and I, it was 10 times more vivid to the people who were hearing it standing there with Jesus because here's why. The first line of the story says this. In Luke chapter 10, verse 3, he says, In reply to Jesus, the man was going, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, to us, that's just, really, what does it matter where he's going, right? It says he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. For us, it doesn't really matter because we don't even know where Jerusalem to Jericho is. He, he could have just replaced it for us. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down a road. Then he was attacked by robbers. It meant the same thing to us either way, but not to the people who were hearing it for the first time there with Jesus. Because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a famous road that had an, well, it was an infamous road that had a reputation that had actually been built many years before this moment, but the reputation of the road stayed. And, and the reputation of this road is that it was an extremely dangerous place. It was a place that was known. For bandits to hang out in. And they would ambush, raw, beat, and sometimes kill people. Now, the, the road had gotten actually better because the Romans, one of the positive things the Romans brought in was more security, and they were working on that. But when Jesus started telling the story that this man was beaten, that was on the road from Jericho, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was beaten. People in the audience listening to the story would be like, well, yeah, I get that. You know, that that's not even, you know, just a story. That's not po- not just possible. That's that, that that probably happened. Some of them may say, yeah, I know somebody that, that's exactly what happened to them. So it was a story that everybody there listening immediately connected with. And the thing about this road was it was on the side of a valley. It wasn't at the top of the valley, it wasn't at the bottom of the valley. It just followed the valley. And, of course, the valleys aren't straight. They kind of weave in and out, and the road weave in and out. The road still exists to today. And then today, of course, it's paved, and it's wide, and there's trucks, and there's cars, and buses. I've been on this very road. And it follows just the wall of the valley going in. Back in Jesus' time, people would walk. there on animals, donkeys, and other things. And what the thieves and bandits would do, it was just a great place to ambush people. And then especially in the late part of the day when the shadows were darker, they would hide in the shadows of the valley, wall that would be, create those shadows from the sun. And they would just hide there and they would watch the people come by. And when they found someone that looked like they may have some wealth, may have some stuff with them, they were alone, wasn't everybody around, they would then ambush that person. And at best, they would just rob you. They may beat you. At worst, it was not uncommon for them just to kill the person that they attacked this road and this road got its popularity long as i said before jesus it was just the title the, the reputation and it had just stayed with them and the romans were trying to improve it but it still was that the road was given a name this little road on this valley was this whole valley was was named by the people the valley of the shadow of death and you see where that Comes from, right? It's a valley and it's in the shadows where death resides. It was in the shadows that you had to be worried about because it was in the shadows where the bandits and the thieves and the killers would hide, and out of those shadows, death would jump out. Jesus uses that place as a backdrop to tell his story of. The Good Samaritan and the man. So the people listening to the story was like, man, it was vivid. It was live. It was like, that's happened, even though you're making it up right now. That's, that's so close to reality. But this wasn't the first time that someone used this place to make a point. Long before Jesus did, in the, in, in, in the time where this place truly was at one of its most dangerous moments where it was getting its reputation. David uses the same place to be the backdrop to tell a story about God's character. And in the Psalms he a psalm that is extremely famous. He uses those same words to tell us how God is emotionally connected and present in our lives. Psalms chapter 23 says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For many of us, we've heard that a thousand times. We just think it's kind of metaphoric, right? What is, but it's also a location. Because again, it's one of those places that David knew when the people would be reading this. They're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, that place is so dangerous, even when I'm there, at the place that all of us think is the most dangerous place on the earth, when you're there. I will fear no evil, and here's why. For you, talking about God, are with me. You have checked in, you showed up. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David's doing what Jesus did. He's taking this place that people could connect with, and he's saying, you know what? When I find myself in situations where, like, like the road going to Jericho, when I find myself in those moments in life where I'm afraid, I'm alone, I'm vulnerable, it seems like there's chaos, it seems like there's the potential for everything to go wrong when I'm experiencing loss or hurt or pain. You know, whether it's physically going through the valley of shadow of death or whether it's just metaphorically your own walking down the valley of the shadow of death. When I'm at a place where it seems that evil is just waiting and winning. One thing I am promised, he says, is you, God. You promise that you're present. Your promise is that you're dialed in. Your promise is that you're not indifferent or lost somewhere else or inattentive to what is happening in your life. Your promise is you show up. It's who you are. You are dialed in. Notice what he doesn't say here, though. He doesn't say this. Psalm 23 doesn't read like this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I feel you with me. I feel your rod. I feel your staff. And that feeling comforts me. That's not what it says. But so often, we live as if that's reality. We live as if it's not the reality that God has said, I promise to be present, so therefore I am present. We live as if reality is that there is a permanent connection between how I feel and what is real. We have a tendency to approach our own valleys of the shadow of death with this kind of idea that how I feel in the moment is what is real. And if I feel God, then God's here. If I don't feel God, then he's not here. Your feelings are not always wrong. But remember this one. You will never find a more consistent and more convincing liar in your life than your own feelings. Your feelings aren't always wrong. But time and time again, the most most consistent liar you will come across in your life is your own feelings. And the most convincing liar you will come across in your life is your own feelings. But way too often, even though that's reality, that's true, every single day, far too often we don't either realize this or we ignore that, and we rely on how we feel to tell us what is real. And so we let how I feel rule the moment. When you walk the road, your own road of the valley shall Sheldon. When you walk down that road, those moments in life, those seasons in life, where there is so much chaos and so much uncertainty and so much fear and hurt and loss and maybe even some danger and you just feel like evil's around. In that moment, you'll be forced to make a choice. You can't escape this choice. You can You will make the choice. You will either make it consciously, or you'll make it subconsciously, but you will make this choice. The choice is this. Either you will choose to say and believe and walk forward believing this to be true, and that is, my God can't lie. He can't. Because why? He's holy, remember? He can't lie. It's not that he doesn't. He just can't. And so he says that he is present, so that the reality is he is present. He is dialed in. For that is what he promised, and he cannot lie. You'll either make the choice to believe that and move forward into your valley with that belief, carrying you, or you'll make the choice to to say, how I feel must be real. So therefore, I feel that maybe God loves me, but, but I don't feel his attention. I don't feel that he's dialed in. I don't feel that he's aware. So he must not be dialed in. He must not be aware. He must not be present. I mean, after all, and we can rationalize it. After all, look what all God has to be in charge of. And look how unworthy I am. So it just makes sense that he's not. It just makes sense that how I feel is real. You're going to make that choice. And one of the other attitudes or one of the other choices of belief is going to shape your attitude and your valley. And, and some of you are facing a valley right now. And the question is, what choice are you making? Another thing he doesn't say here is he doesn't say, I will not fear because you've taken me around the valley. I I will not fear because you've helped me to avoid the valley altogether. God's promise here is for him to be present in the valley, not to always direct you in a way to avoid the valley. And And there's a couple reasons for that. One, it's because of where you live. You and I live in a world that is broken. We do. And we don't live in islands unto ourselves. And because we live here, there's chaos. There's hurt. There's loss. There's pain. There's evil and there's death. Until the day that Christ returns and says, that reality is gone. The new reality exists. Until that moment comes, there's going to be the valley of the shadow of death because of where we live. You see, I don't want to get all into this because it's a whole other sermon, but Right now, God's holiness, which demands payment for sin, is being damned up by God's grace to give us time, give humanity centuries to respond to grace, embrace His forgiveness, so that that day comes where He says no more, and His holiness is, is undammed, and it pours out, and it's called judgment, that we who've embraced His grace are forgiven. Because even our sins has to be dealt with, because His holiness demands it. But His grace means we can pay our, debt, our sin can be paid for by the cross. But until that day that the dam is released, it means that evil is not judged. Ultimately, not judged. So there's going to be moments of loss. There's going to be moments of chaos. There's going to be moments of pain. There are going to be our death valleys, the valley of the shadow of death. They will be there because of where we live. For many, many years, I lived in Tornado Alley. You know what we expected when we lived in Tornado Alley? Tornadoes, because that's where we live. We live in a broken world. As a result, there will be valleys. Secondly, and we don't want to hear this one, but one of the reasons he doesn't take us around the valley or always make us avoid the valley is because sometimes we need the valley. We don't want to hear that we need the valley, but we need the valley. There's a number of different reasons why we may need the valley. One, we may need to grow our faith. You simply cannot grow faith when when there's When there's no requirement of faith. Faith is like a muscle. If you're never required to use it, it remains weak. And sometimes we need valleys. We need the chaos. We we need the the loss. We need the hurt. We need the pain to just give us opportunities to say, this is what I choose to believe. This is where I put my faith. Sometimes we need the valleys to refine us. Because we have a propensity to embrace a habit, an attitude, an opinion, a way of thinking that is not godly and true. But we hold on to it. And as the years go by, the longer we hold on to it, it becomes a part of us. It just becomes a part of the way we think. It just becomes a part of our attitude about life. It just becomes a part of how we interact with people. It just becomes a part of us. And sometimes the only way for God to chisel that out of our life is through the power and the pressure that comes with the valley. Sometimes we just, we need it to grow our faith. Sometimes we need it to refine us. And sometimes we need it to humble us. Sometimes we need it just to keep our hearts soft. Because we have a tendency to make our hearts hard. Some of us, listen, sometimes you need it because God wants you to minister to someone else going through the same thing. And it's really hard to reach out and truly be a comforting force, for someone when you've never experienced it so sometimes god lets us go through the valley because it's just simply where we are where we live right now and sometimes it's because we need it but regardless of that it's never fun there's a reason why it's called the valley of the shadow of death it's reason why it's called that it's not fun but here's the deal whether you feel it or not god has checked in in those moments god is present he is aware He's dialed in to what you're experiencing at that moment. And not only that, whether he rescues you out of that valley or lets you walk through it, he's there. He's walking with you. Here's a truth that is so good, that in Christ, you can never be alone. Still, in Christ, you can't be alone ever. You simply cannot. But that truth only becomes powerful when you let it craft your attitude when you're in the valley, when you let it shape your confidence in the valley, when you let it control your outlook in the valley. That's when it becomes powerful. It's true. You and Christ cannot be alone truth. But that doesn't mean it's powerful in your life. It only becomes powerful in your life when you let that, when you're in the midst of the valley, when you're in the midst of the chaos and the hurt and the loss and you let that truth, I cannot be alone. I am not alone. When you let that craft your attitude, I will make it through this, not because of my ability to pull myself up by my own bootstraps but because in Christ I cannot be alone. My God has not abandoned me. And that is the confidence I will have in this moment. When when you let it shape your attitude and your confidence and when you let it control your outlook, that's when the truth becomes powerful. Listen to Psalms chapter 46. For our God is a refuge and a strength and an ever-present Help in trouble. I love that. It doesn't say an occasional help. A when you deserve it help. When he doesn't have something else going on help. An in and out help. Our God is a refuge. An ever present help in trouble. When we let that truth guide our confidence. Shape our attitude. And control our outlook. Here's what happens. Verse 2. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam and mountains quake with their surging, even though life can get beyond our minds to be able to understand in its chaos. I'm going to be okay. And how do I know I'm going to be okay? Because there's a truth that says whether I feel it or not. God is dialed in. God is checked in. God is present. Because at the core of who God is, that's who he is. He is present. And so I'm going to let that, even though I may feel differently, I'm going to let that truth be the thing that crafts my attitude, that shapes my confidence, that controls my. Maybe you're not in a valley right now. That's great. You're going to be in one, so tuck this away. Now, maybe you are in one. Maybe you're in the valley of the death of death or divorce or marital struggles. Maybe your valley is constant sickness. Maybe your valley is financial. Maybe it's joblessness or death or some other type of loss or hurt or pain. I don't care the way you feel. This is what I want you to know. God God is in the middle of that valley with you. He is. And he's already got a path through it to the other side of it. Already. Now, that path may have some more tough moments in it. There may be some more storms along the way of that path, but he's, he's got a brighter day in the future for you. And if you'll let the truth it doesn't. It's not a belief. If you let the truth that God is present in that with you, if you let that craft your attitude and shape your confidence and control your outlook, you'll not only make it through, but when you do come through in ways that you never imagined or thought possible, you'll actually be a better version of you than you are right now.